Welcome to episode 29 of The God Learners, a podcast about reading and gaming in the mythical world of Glorantha. My name is Jörg. And I'm Ludo, aka Lord Abdul. And today we have two guests, the first one of which everybody knows uh, because he's been there already. And this is Nick Brook. Hi, Nick. Hello again. Thank you for having me back on the podcast. I'm very surprised to be here. <laughs> yeah, why 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 do we have you again? Uh well, mostly because uh people uh love it when you're on actually. We had some uh, good positive feedback from the your episode describing the glorious lunar empire and uh of it is course glorious, isn't it? Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who has uh shamefully not listened to those past episodes, who are you and what are you doing? <laughs> Nick Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking people who shamefully hadn't listened to the past episodes who they were and what they were doing, so we could round them up. Not that we would do that. We are a peace-loving empire. No, okay. Hi, I'm Nick Brook. I'm one of Chaosium's community ambassadors for the Johnstown Compendium and other Chaosium community content programs, but that's the one you're interested in, which basically means I help people get their stuff into digital and printed formats on drive-through RPG. I've been a fan of Glorantha since I was very small. I've been involved in Gloranthan fan publications since the early 1990s. And it's a real pleasure to be here waving the standard for um, Greg Stafford's amazing Bronze Age-ish fantasy world of Glorantha. Bronze Age-ish. Yeah, I like it. The ish is important. <laughs> the ish is yes. very important. And our second guest is Simon Bray. Hi, Simon. Hi, how are you all? Nice to meet everybody. Nice to Especially old friends like Nick. So it's been a while <laughs> since we've seen each other in the flesh. And Jörg, it's been a very long time since I've seen you in the flesh. So. Yes. I've never seen Jörg in the flesh. You're lucky. <laughs> There's a lot of it. <laughs> There's a lot of it vertically. There's a lot of it vertically, yes. Vertically. That's, that's what I heard here, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Simon, who are you? What are you doing? In the... So I am Simon Bray. I have been uh, hanging around in Glorantha since I was a very young boy. I got into uh, Glorantham uh, creativity in the, I think it was about 94, I made my sort of first proper deadline. I did send things in 92, but everybody ignored me. In 94, they suddenly wanted me. So I've worked on oh God, so many fanzines and professional publications. I was the art director for Moon Design for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, one of the lead artists with the uh, Tales of the Reaching Moon crew. And uh, I ran my own um, publishing house with Dr. Mark Galliotti, which produced The Unspoken Word. Oh, yeah. Uh, back in uh, the, the year 2000, I think we found it. Was it 2000? Yes. Yes, something like that. So, yes, we've been, 2001, I think, The Unspoken Word 1 actually mm-hmm. appeared. So, yeah, we've yeah. I've been around a long, long time. And I think I'm on here because... I, I, sorry. I think I may have sent you your first ever fan mail. You did, you did, which I still have. And it does occasionally come out. I've got got it electronically. It was an absolute (laughs) pleasure. The thing is, Simon was working himself into an early grave doing art for David Hall. And I basically wrote to him saying, slow down. (laughs) 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 Don't don't kill yourself doing this. There's a a tragic thing with the great Glorantham artists usually die young. But Simon so far is the exception because he is a great Glorantham artist and he is not young. Uh, but by the way, since we are talking about Florentan uh, artists, the first thing I want to say is that so we're going to talk about furthest crown jewel of uh, Tarsh, the uh, of Lunar Tarsh, 
Yeah, Luna Lunar Tosh. Luna Simon. I put it there to balance things. Simon wanted to call it Crown Jewel of Tosh. And I said, if yeah. I call it that, the O will be off center. And I want a nice red O. <laughs> <laughs> Crown Jewel of yeah, Luna Tosh. Much nicer title. Every now and again, my. My assistant forgets, and I, I have to beat it. Uh, but yes, so it's uh, <laughs> your recent book by Simon, Nick, and a few other friends that is on the Johnston Compendium. So yeah, the first thing is that it is beautiful. There's a lot of great art by Simon, but by also uh, other people. And it's just like, yeah. It, yeah. it certainly is. I'd just like to be very clear about this. Other than design, there is very little of mine in that book. Um, and I'm not saying that to belittle it. It is a huge accomplishment by Simon and his long-term collaborators, where um, he allowed me to slap in a Leonard Cohen song and a few pages <laughs> about sewage, uh, and, 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 and that's that's my uh, and the and the forward bits which wanks on with Escarte and Colonia yeah. Ultima in order to wind up Jeff. Uh, but apart from that, it's Simon's book. There was, a, there was a good amount of useful poking, though, Nick. Uh, I will actually say that oh, goodness. The, the whole project wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Nick in the sense of the fact that it's been a project that's been simmering for far too long, uh, which I didn't know which direction to take the project. And I was like, I'm going to print the maps up on the Johnstown Compendium. And Nick went, no. <laughs> he said, you're not doing that. They don't sell. Nobody wants just a map. Uh, he says we need to do a booklet <laughs> to go with the map. <laughs> Ignore the let. Yeah. Ignore the let. So Simon <laughs> sent me. Uh, I think it must have been a forty-something page word document that was what, what's now the Gazetteer of the City, and it was one of those things where you begin reading at the beginning and you keep reading until you lose the will to live, and then you stop because it it wasn't. And I mean this lovingly, it wasn't organised, it wasn't structured, it was this brilliant collection of ideas, all of which are in the book. The whole thing is in the book, it was all great, especially the commas, they're really good. Um, <laughs> but um, it didn't have a, a structure so you could approach it as somebody who wasn't already inside Simon's brain and say, oh, now I get how furthest works. Which is a scary just, place to be. <laughs> and, I, and I cracked it, and I partly cracked it because of something I'd done for Crimson King, which was w the cinematic fly-past going through the centre of glamour and out the side and up to the Red Moon. And I said, well, why don't you do that with Simon's description of furthest? It's a planned city. It's a rectangular planned city with major roads crossing at right angles, like the kind of city built by various ancient cultures, including <laughs> the Incas. Oh, nice. <laughs> so if you come to furthest, you're going to be walking in through a gate and advancing down a straight line into the middle of the city that's got all the big public buildings and temples and government buildings. So why don't you just take Simon's description and say, I'm going to reorder this to say, here's the gate, here's the thing inside the gate, these are the main buildings either side of the road until you reach the civic centre. Stop, rewind, do that coming in through another gate, do that coming in through a third gate, do that coming in, it's not quite as easy as through a fourth gate because the city's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> and then deal with, amazingly enough, you've now got four quarters left over and some odds and sods. And that is how I sliced it and I showed Simon that I could take his far too large to fit in a book map and break it down into bite-sized chunks just strolling along the evocatively named the Fargentine Way and the Way of the Red Moon and the, um, can't remember the rest of them, the Great Market oh, yeah, so Way, many, isn't it? Yeah. the processional, all these roads. 
and it just worked. Yeah. It, 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 it just worked. So what you're saying is that I can I can send you my uh, fifty thousand mess of a manuscript, uh, fifty thousand words, uh, and you'll organize it and make a wonderful book out of it. <laughs> uh, absolutely. If we've been friends for oh, thirty years, okay. then you can <laughs> send me your. <laughs> I, I, I need to wait another twenty five years. Then I'll send that to you in twenty five years. But yeah, so how how long has this been in the making, Simon? Well, in a way, it started in 2001. <laughs> uh, in 2001, we got sent, uh, I got sent by Greg, um, in the, by post, a very sort of crudely drawn uh, map of furthest, uh, which arrived on mine and Mark Galliotti's sort of laps. And we decided to do something with it in the unspoken word one. And uh, which was called Tarshan Flames. And we basically did, Mark Galeotti wrote an article called Furthest the Child of the New Tarsh. And I did, um, took Greg's map and jazzed it up a little bit. And it was, uh, I can't really show the public, but as I see, a very, very, very simple square map with oh, a page, lot of areas. Black and white. What are you black talking about? Get away yeah. with you. And, and 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 it was it was fine. Uh, I mean, Greg had some quite specific things that had to be on this. Um, when Unspoken Word One came out, he grabbed a copy and and immediately went to the map page to check I'd done things right, and he was happy with what it was. Um, and he wasn't happy. He loved it, Simon. Be honest. Yeah, he loved it. He loved it. <laughs> and and the thing was as well is. Back in those days as well, um, Greg was actually an active contributor to the Unspoken Word books. It wasn't just like Greg was reading somebody else's stuff. He was a contributor to our, our book. So Unspoken Word 1 had quite a few sections. We had like the notes on the history of Tarsh were given to us by Greg. We have maps given to him. Uh, he read sections of it. The full first write-up of Marin Gore. Okay, it was Hero Wars, but was actually written by Greg and published in that book. So there was a great legacy there for me to already work on, on stuff that we'd got. So later on down the line, having a couple of chats with Greg and there was things we talked about, about the map itself and the limitations of what we'd done. So later on, I did some more evolutions of that map and it was all looking like it was going to get set to you know be published in some format uh, but it didn't it got sort of stuck on a back shelf the lunar books and the tarsh books and things sort of didn't go the way they were planning to go at the time and then down the line i started to evolve it and then I got, I think it was on BRP that people were sort of popping up saying, when, where, is there an official map of, of furthest anywhere? And everybody kept going, no, there isn't. But Simon Bray drew one in the unspoken word one. And, you know, we'd like to see it out there. And I kept thinking, so would I. So I had, I had this sort of, this coloured map, uh, which was drawn on some antique programme, probably Coral Draw 9 or something like that. Uh, and it was very crude. And I let a few people look at it and I played in it. We we actively played. The, the whole thing about the unspoken word is we were a group of gamers writing our games up. So we played a long Tarsh campaign, which led to a lot of the stuff about thieves and gangs and bandits and you know corrupt guards and things like that. That was our campaign. This is because Mark Golly, Mark Galliotti is famously criminally inclined. Isn't that all players though? Yeah. So Mark was my uh, my my um, 
partner in crime back then. And it's Dr. Mark Galliotti, who's the world's leading authority on Russian organized crime or something to that effect. Mm. Uh, yeah, which made really interesting. It was quite funny, actually, our pairing with Mark, because he turned up at a random barbecue that I was having uh, where we said we we're going to do some gaming. He turned up. We hadn't got any clue who this man was who turned up on this thing. He just had contacted me and said, can I come and role play with you? So we he was Dr. Mark, or the doctor, as he was called, and, and we would just play these games with him. And then I went to a convention with him, and people like Nick came up and knew who he was. And it was quite shocking to me, because <laughs> we didn't know who he was or what he did. He was just a really nice guy to play games with. <laughs> he, he does seem to be a really nice guy, but never ask him where the last expert in Russian crime <laughs> <laughs> is. <laughs> I must admit, when we, when we used to go gaming at his house, we had he had some of the largest dogs you've ever seen in your entire life. At least five of them. Mark will probably write into you and say it was actually nineteen or something like that. Um, but yes, it was. It was it, and, and we wrote together, we played together, um, and, and the stuff evolved. And he worked for quite a long time with Greg on a variety of lunar manuscripts um, that went through various incarnations and changed. So there's legacies, there's bits and pieces of all this in what I've done today. That sort of crude map was shown around to people. It sort of got various likes and dislikes, and it sat there. I started at one point talking to Chaosium about the possibility of doing a bigger map. I showed the map to Jeff, uh, and Jeff went, oh, that wall's a bit thick. Uh, no, thin, sorry, that wall's a bit thin, and would you have a palace there? And a few pokes and prods in certain directions. Uh, but what he did send me was some quite useful uh, images of real-world grid map cities, which I've not got access to that quality of, uh, of cartography. I've seen real-world maps, but these were beautifully illustrated maps that he sent me over from various supplements and things he'd got, which got me to thinking about how this city's actually going to work. I, I, to me, the city furthest had to be the essence of glamour in in, in pocket size uh, on the frontier of the empire. You have to remember that furthest isn't just a city. It, this is a city that Jariel the Razorus comes down to stay at for weekends. <laughs> it's not. It's not a, a Tarshite city. It's a city in Tarsh. There's a huge. It's a city difference. in Tarsh. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, the Red Emperor has rooms here. You know, suites of rooms here. He has his. He has a vast temple here, um, which ironically, if you sort of look into it a little bit more, is actually the town, temple of Yelm Imperator. But hey. Who's the emperor, you know? <laughs> that, that, that's the way it always works. It, it is. It always works like that. And so there was things like the palace. It was on the original map. The palace was a very small thing in the center of the, my city. Uh, I think if you remember right, the Hippodrome was this, basically the size of a merry-go-round. <laughs> I think it was like <laughs> maybe two horses could run around in the short circle. I think there's been paddocks that were bigger. Uh, and You're it just needed honest, to evolve. Simon, this is wonderful <laughs> yeah. to hear. <laughs> it needed to evolve. Mm. Um, so that, that might have been a good contribution off Jeff was your hippodrome's too small. And I went, oh, we went hippodrome, hippodrome. <laughs> I think my, my best contribution that's made it in was telling you, you know, you know that hill that's got all the palaces on it is called the Acropolis. That's what that yeah, word yeah, means. Yeah, Let's yeah, use yeah. it. <laughs> Love that. 
I did. And there's been, even during the sort of final processes, there's been some, there was tweaks and things like that. So at one point, the uh, fortress was actually higher than the palace. And I was like, no way, no way. You can't. Spoils the view. Exactly. It spoils the view. You need to be able to have a clear view over your city in one direction and you need to stand in the back balconies overlooking in the the northwestern direction so that you can see uh, north. I always get my directions. Northeasterly direction. So you get the most perfect. No, northwest. I was right first. No, northwest was right. Northwest was right. A beautiful view of the red moon in the distance and know mm. that you are looking upon glamour. Because, of course, yeah. it'll be full as well. You see the palace in the background with moonlights. Behind the sex tent. Behind the sex tent, yes. Let, let, let's not talk about the sex tent, <laughs> otherwise everyone wants to come in for this and have weird adventures there. Okay. <laughs> the, the text well, um, of Simon's it, book does not mention his sex tent. Well, I, I'm going to go back to Greg on this one. So one of the key factors that Greg was absolutely insistent on was the location of the Illyria Temple. So mm-hmm. on the maps he drew me, there was a great big arrow which clearly stated that the Temple of Illyria had to situate on Love Street in the top corner of the map uh, on the street of arts if i remember right it's like this sort of little state and it was really important to him in fact that's the thing when i said he grabbed the map and had a look that's what he looked at he checked uh, he checked where the call of valeria was and, and then i was okay. like well, okay because greg because greg <laughs> and that was his main thing <laughs> i will say I'm really interested in the sacred geometry of Furthest. After looking at your map and the history, and when you start thinking mm-hmm. about where are the temples, what was there before Honiel came and drew it, you're on the death line. There was a line it down the middle of the city. The and if you crossed from this side to that side, you're dead. And on the dead side of the death line is the Marangor Temple. This all means something. And I think if you were to do an adventure in Furthest and read Neil Gaiman's book Neverwhere or watch Mm -hmm. the slightly ropey BBC TV adaptation, (laughs) you could have a whale of a time taking things that are landmarks in the city, making them literal people on the map and just ping-ponging off them the way adventurers do. The, the really funny thing is with that, Nick, is if that was actually a big chunk of our campaign. Uh, the There is a character whose name I won't say because he's a protagonist in the story who was actually my player character. And mm. he was a, a of shamanic inclination. And we actually had shamanic maps of furthest where you knew where the children had died and you knew where the murder had occurred and you knew what monster lived there you knew what spirit lived there what god you know what entities were around on a spiritual level and it it was really important that seeing the world from that point of view as well rather than it just being and and that was as a player character that wasn't as me writing some esoterica that was me writing as the, the stuff that came out was what we encountered during our game we needed to do things to um the character was a very underworld or the campaign was very underworld orientated so there was an awful lot of like having to get your own back at another gang and having a shaman who could go into somebody else's uh, magical wards and see inside what their the hearts of their gang lands was was really important in the campaign i like i like the idea of a shamanic map to to use that for the game Let's not bandy words here, Simon. You were basically a sewer shaman. I was a sewer shaman. Uh, yes. yes, yes. 
We did actually do some really bad things with sewerage to uh, the other enemy gangs uh, by going on a hero quest, which involved uh, the Rat King, uh, which was, was quite interesting, a bit of fun, which may get written up, actually. It's one of those sort of things mm. that's quite fun and might be seen light in the late. Anyway, let's, you know, sort of start at the beginning because before <laughs> before we go into the sewers and Nick started talking about the death line and Hon Eel and all that, uh, yeah. some people might not know what the hell half of this is about. <laughs> so uh, let's start with what would your average listeners campaign characters know about Furthest and Tarsh? Uh, let's start with like some Sartarite characters. What would they know about it? Well, they would know where that's where their governance for the last uh, 30 years has actually come from. That's that's where they would have received their um, knowledge of, of, of language, um, the arts uh, and culture for, for around about 30 years now. Well, uh, language, not quite. It's not the same language. Oh, the, the language that they're probably reading in, because not everybody can read cat scratchings because it, it's a, it's this this thing oh, that's you mean held writing. by the, the, the language writing. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. is New Pelorian. New Pelorian, which of course is taught for free by the Seven <laughs> Mothers cult, uh, <laughs> really? and of course is if you want your children to be educated and literate in Sartar, you could send them to a Lankormai who's far too busy doing the law keeping of your clan. Or you could send them to the priestess at the end of the road, who, who's more than happy to take your children in and give them the blessings of Tilo Nori and look after them and, and, and show them the way of literature. And of course, one of the great things of Furthest, uh, and your Lankor Mai knows this as well, because your Lankor Mai has brethren in Furthest, is Furthest is the home of the Southern Provincial University, one of the great universities of the Lunar Empire, possibly one of the greatest in Grantha, uh, and a centre of learning um, in fact, and I think and if we frame ourselves carefully to cut out the ho- holy country, we can say it's the greatest university in Dragon Pass. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm doing so, something kind of heroic here. It's yes. like calling yourself <laughs> the University of East Anglia while standing next to Cambridge. But these things happen. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the provincial university in Furthest is a great seat of learning. Yeah. So, of course, the listeners will have to understand that this is entire episode will be from the point of view of the Lunar Torshite, most definitely. No, 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 but, no, 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 no. Sartorite. <laughs> Sartorite perspective. Yeah, Just yeah. Um, liberated Sartorite perspective. <laughs> Old thinkers, unbelly feel moonwise, Lunar. No, but exactly. After, after the Dragon Rise, like this is basically a disaster for academia in, in Sartar. So, no, there, there is. So, so one of the things is, is of course, as you remember, that, that, that quite often professors do an awful lot of sitting behind desks, smoking pipes, and other such things, uh, and 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 thinking about limited projects. Whereas uh, their, their students who couldn't afford to go down to the to the induction of the new temple of Ichimu, uh were, were were still at home doing their studies. So, in fact, the the young scholars and things that the the, the, the lifeblood was still actually back at home the ambitious young scholars but i think it's it's ludo is right actually to frame the dragon rise primarily as a humanitarian catastrophe it i think is. i think that is that is the correct way to look at this this disaster this some um, <laughs> massive setback for the education of the quivina lands 
exactly. So yeah. one of the sections of the book you will see, I know jumping slightly ahead, but fitting in with that, Ludo, is that though we have gone through, when I was creating the book, I wanted to emphasise what the Dragon Rise did, what the Great Winter did, because we talk about these events and we have some random roles on the table that tell us the Great Winter did this. But if you go back to the Guide to Glorantham, you have a look at the size of the wind stop and who it affected it was a vast amount of people that were affected by this that were led into the risks of starvation. So you get these little sections where there's, there's explaining how that impacts people. You know, the, the people were starving, they were cold, they couldn't light fires. They were they, they, the, the Anelden cult, as much as the Olanthi cult was being affected by this. And, and then you had the Dragon Rise after. So Tarsh was impacted by both of those things. And there is a commonality because one of the things is that we perceive... Tarsh, uh, and one of the things that we got wrong, I think, in Unspoken Word 1 was that we were trying to work out what Tarsh looked like without Orlanth. But in reality, Orlanth is there. He exists throughout Tarsh. There is a, a substantial <laughs> amount of Tarshites that are follow Orlanth. But the difference is, is what the attitude is of the majority of the Tarshites, Orlanthi, is that they know that if they behave, if they pay their taxes, then they will reap the benefits of civilization in the same way as as every other lunar citizen was doing. If they want to become a lunar citizen and follow the whole red moon path, they're going to have to look at different ways of worshipping. But nobody's better, going to oppress them. Yeah, yeah, better ways of worshipping. And they they will get the the seven mothers priests walking into the, the village every so often to offer them blessings. They will be looking at, you know, the education that their children are going to be able to have. If they want their children to end up in high positions in the cities, they're going to have to look at possibly their children worshipping different deities than they do. And it, it is an impact across. But also those farmers were as affected by things like the windstop and the Great Winter as the Sartrites in the South were. And there is, we always sort of see them as, there's a line there in the Tarshites and the Sartrites, but the intermarrying of the cultures, they, they're not frozen from each other. They, they blend and merge across those boundaries all the time. So Sartrite merchants have been visiting furthest for a lot longer than the empire has been in Tatsata because it's a great place to go and get silk and tomatoes and oranges and potatoes bananas. <laughs> <laughs> potatoes <laughs> and learning and knowledge and medicine and a lot of things there you know there's there's a reason to go there i mean you're asking what would the reason to be going there you've been going there all along yeah, you know, there's, there's a, the, the markets of furthest are run by Etries and Isaries worshippers in unity, not separately. At varying times, I, my perception is that the Etries cult sometimes is dominant, and sometimes the Isaries cult is dominant. But often they're in harmony, working together. It's a family business, Simon, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We all know who's going to inherit in the end. But meanwhile, Etries yeah. <laughs> and daughter. And it's exactly the same with the university. You know, your Lancorm eyes can sit there with their mule skin over their head, sniffing in whatever they're throwing on the fire and all the rest of it, which is what the Sartorite Lancorm eyes used to do, but I'm not sure what they do. They're all lived in, in, in studies these days. But the, the whole sort of structure of information, um, you know, if you think that when Sartre was around, yes, text and things have been created, and we do have access to stuff in the South, but... A lot of that literacy, a lot of that education, a lot of that knowledge is coming down from the north because they haven't 
lost it all. You know, Sartre and, and Colimar and all the rest walked into a ruin and found bits and pieces that were relevant, but in all cases, but you have to remember that from the north were coming the, the explorers and they were carrying their knowledge and information. I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt my, my esteemed colleague here, whose wisdom I greatly value, to say that this isn't entirely the case. Um, <laughs> the first settlers of Tarsh were essentially expelled from what is now the southern lunar empire because they opposed the conquering daughter. They were yes. wrong to oppose the Red Emperor's conquering daughter in the, in the first wane. It was a, a costly mistake. And um, because they made that mistake, they were expelled from what is now Sililus Sultanate and uh, washed up in Tarsh, crossing the perilous glow line and settling in what became King yeah. Arim's hidden kingdom, the tribe of Tarsh, a, a little refugee band that gradually, over the coming decades and centuries, grew to be the mightiest power in Dragon Pass, as it is to this day. And we might just mention that the death line was that this, because Dragon Pass had yes. been unpopulated by humans for yeah for like a century and a half uh, because the dragons killed everybody after the last time all anthe tried allying with dragons the resulting genocide of all human life in dragon pass lasted for centuries and was bounded by what's called the death line in the north south of which there was no human settlement and the cross line in the south north of which there was no human settlement. This is what happened the last time all Anthe in Dragon Pass <laughs> allied with dragons to achieve mundane political aims. And, and I think now you can see why I'm framing the dragon rise as a humanitarian catastrophe, not just looking at the immediate context, but the longer term mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. But that, no, my, my point is, yes, there was a, a vibrant Orlanthi culture in Sayird, the south of Peloria, the highlands encroaching on the lowlands in the south of Peloria. It all sounds very um, dire straits, brother in arms, when you put it that way. Very lovely. <laughs> um, and they, were, they, they, they migrated to um, a region where they thought they would be dead, and they ended up founding what is to this day the greatest kingdom in Dragon Pass. And for a while, the Quiviniland <laughs> bandit tribes were a kind of irritating southeastern fringe to the kingdom of Greater Tarsh, just as there are irritating bandit tribes to the west of Greater Tarsh that you can read about in Peter Hart's superb adventure, Hydra, which we, we both yeah. commend to you. <laughs> Oh yeah, Peter. Um, so there is another. There's another factor in just slightly sliding back to the origin of the book. So Peter Hart actually plays a part in this. Mm. So Peter contacted me, and um, the other part of this is something that hopefully will appear later. Was I had worked on Copper Town, which is the largest set of copper mines in all Dragon Pass. Copper is used mixed with tin to make bronze, which everybody in Dragon Pass is hitting each other over the head with or, or plowing their fields with. So one of the things to go to Tarsh for is Copper Town. And um, so Peter was writing his Hydra and he sort of said to me, um, can I use some of your bits of Copper Town and some of the writing? I said, yeah, 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 fine. But of course, we started to have conversations and it made me think, actually, Peter, I want to do my own thing with the bulk of the text I've given you. 
So there's a lot of sort of ideas that were going there. And me and Peter sort of said, yeah, yeah, that will work. And I, I said, yeah, you can have this. And then and eventually, so he's got chunks of my work in there. And then I sort of pulled the other stuff back into this. So Peter was a really good catalyst in this as well. And, and you know, and he does deserve some credit for that. And he's a really nice guy too. I, I, and this thing has happened before. I mean, you said that there, there's that burp central thread about the official map of Furthest, which is part of why the map was always on your back burner until it became became what it is now. Um, and similarly, Burp Central had a thread in December of 2019 by somebody asking questions about the geography of glamour. And yeah. if I hadn't been engaged in answering those questions and picking that little red book off my shelf and thinking, this is really good. And around the time I was talking to Mob about the Johnstown Compendium and what could be done on it, well, maybe the rough guide to glamour wouldn't have come out again. So mm. You know, Burp Central does do some good things, although it also does some incredibly tedious things. <laughs> and, and, and maps are great. But anyway, so uh, I want to say, actually, that Tarsh is one of my absolute favorite places in Glorantha. There's a, like, you know, in Dragon Pass, basically, like you said, like the, you know, people fleeing the conquering daughter made the kingdom of Tarsh, while people fleeing, uh, well, leaving Hortland in the south made Sartar and out of the two I find Tarsh like way more interesting yeah. because of the, uh, well but, then yeah. Ludo you just play in Eastern Tarsh <laughs> yes well no I Maybe. I play I play in the far place so I guess I yeah, play yeah, 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 Eastern yeah, Tarsh yeah Eastern yeah we write about I, I, of course we do mention the, the far place in, in, yeah, in the yeah. uh, furthest yeah, crown yeah, jewel Luna Tarsh so, and one of my actual favourite of all the illustrations I did it's the one that, that, that with the skull yeah, and the yeah, uh, yeah, city yeah, in the nice. background and the, all the uh, it was really good but one of the things we were talking about how do we get our players to play in Tarsh if you imagine the average role playing group has five people involved in it, one fifth of every Gloranthan role playing group that's ever played has had somebody playing Tarshites. Yeah. Unless they've been playing in Teshnos or Ezrolia, and even or then Fruit. they might have made it. But every GM at some point has played a Luna Tarshite in a campaign because that is their role they're part of the game as well and they're bringing to life those characters as much as anybody else and one of the things that a gm can do is not always have them as the the wicked uh, mustachio twiddling uh, villain but they can have them as the friend the merchant if you read the starter book you know there's stuff in there about the, the people you're meeting aren't bad seven mothers initiates they are the people that live on your street they they might be your family they might be the the people that you've grown up with the kids you've played with at school you know there's some quite important things about the tensions that are going on in the community there that's really important to think about one of the things that I know I share a fandom with Simon with is the late lamented series Firefly mm -hmm. and running the Lunars as if they're the Alliance out of Firefly, that they are basically, they're a reasonable civilization that's trying to achieve things that kind of cut into your margin if you are a criminal outlaw who wants to hang out on the frontier and resurrect the old rebellion that failed. Um, but... Can you really blame them for that? They're just, <laughs> you know, they're just trying to trying to get by. And running the lunars that way is great fun if you've got players who want to um, arbitrarily attack people for wearing the colour red or owning pet dogs or having ever touched a goat or whatever. It's um, <laughs> it's it's quite a good counterbalance to the extremism. Is to say, well, no. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, like yeah. Lunar Tarshite is a playable homeland in the core book, and yes, also, uh, you know, how how would they be able to drag the others up in furthest? So one of the things that I've done in the because the, we talk about the book just being about furthest, it's not. It, it is a definitely a Tarsh book. There's a whole sort of section in there breaking down tarsh itself you know so when you're looking it, it, it is the crown jewel of lunar tarsh because lunar tarsh is explored in there so you do see some typical concepts of villages in there as well you, you're seeing where the local man lives it's not just all about the big city but also then connects them to that city so you do get the sort of thing that you know if you think for example if your character so you're playing a grazer for example you are literally oh, let's just do a little scale here. A, uh you a day or so's ride from furthest. Fifteen miles from uh, sorry, just twenty miles or so, twenty-five miles to Dunstop, roughly. But what are the first point and then you, what our book gives you that you didn't have before is we describe exactly how the lunar Tarshites patronize everyone who lives next to them. And that's, <laughs> that's critical role-playing information. So you've got the lunar Tarshite view on what's wrong with the grazers, with Balazaring, with people from Ole, with the exiles, all of them. We we piss on everyone. And, and that, if you're running a campaign in furthest, you have to know this kind of basic, here's how we see it. Yeah. But there's more to it than that. But it is really important. I love the way Simon framed this, is that all of the, I have heard of neighbouring lands, what can you tell me about them stuff, is all from the point of view of, well, they'd be better off if they were run by us. <laughs> I, I couldn't help it. I must admit, when I wrote it, I wrote it in a way that really looked like that. it was definitely a bit of um, uh, newspeak going on in it. So if you read it and you've never ever <laughs> read anything in Grantham before, you will believe that everybody else apart from Tarshites are imbeciles. It, it was intentional um, <laughs> in every respect. And and why everything is beautiful. Yeah, I mean... And, and, Tarshites and, think Heartlanders are idiots. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're those people to the north that do really weird things. We, it, it's, it, but so you are going to get your character. So if you're, you're playing a grazer, you are going to be traveling. There are locations specifically in Tarsh where Tarshites and grazers have traded for a long time Benst Falls comes to mind as one of the places. Um, you know, one of the first people that Aram the pauper met was um, Ben Bazil, I think was his name or something like that. He was a, a grazer. So either a grazer or a centaur, but or a centaur, yeah, yeah. Again, confused. I yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was um, a horse involved. It was a horse involved. I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact details, but horses. <laughs> So, you know, they've already had that cross-pollination. If you're playing a Sartorite, if you're playing a son of an Iseris, if you haven't travelled up to furthest to go and get something really cool for your clan, the problem we have with this perception is that the, the, the Sartorites sit there with everything coming to them, okay? They don't. Every they have to go somewhere to get what they want. Some of them do. The the useless yeah. ones do. The dregs. Yeah. The, the, yes. the, the folk with no ambition sit there in satar and steal cows from each other. Satars <laughs> who've got any get up and go, get up and go. Exactly. Yeah, there is a there is a big trade route going from Notchet through Saltar to furthest and then yeah. Glamour, right? Exactly. So, and obviously the prophet sits at the end of those routes in the Empire and in Notchet, but along the way, middlemen get to cream off crumbs and that's Sartar. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just yeah. saying. Yeah. There... And the thing is, if you cream off those crumbs, if you capture that, you can make your royal family and your nobles very, very rich, as long as you don't let it trickle out to the rest of the population. <laughs> and that's why Sartar is as wealthy as some lunar sultanates, they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so the other thing is, if you're thinking about, again, uh, to me, merchants are really important with these sorts of things. You know, if you are a cobbler making shoes in Boldholm, if you're completely relying on, you know, great shaggy red-haired oxen for your source of leather that's tough and, you know, more like a piece of rawhide. Or you're going to go for nice, soft, sleek, lowland tarshite cattle with this beautiful mm. leather. Which are you going to want? So when you, all of a sudden, you're one day you're making fine ladies' slippers, and then the next day, uh, the dragon rise occurs, and all you can manufacture is great hairy boots. I mean, that, that it's the whole thing about, like, you know, Bronze Age and Iron Age uh, large trade was mostly driven by sort of uh, luxury yeah. materials and luxury items so yeah if, if you're making everyday shoes then yes it's just a sartarite guy making it from sartarite cows but anything better than that needs materials from other, exactly. other place yeah and also there's the training like you might also even travel to furthest just to meet with some better cobblers and better academia i I could probably if i I remember right i can probably tell you who the local cobblers are i probably did cover them at some (laughs) point in the book (laughs) simon talks a lot of cobblers it is known yes yeah (laughs) that's an english idiom there for your views so it's okay there's also the thing as well you know when soldiers come to places yes they go around sometimes and stab people but quite often they go and stand as guards and then they integrate with the local community and although later on they may be deemed to be sympathizers or similar horrible words as that at that time they are probably actually your brother-in-law your husband your father you know that sort of areas that you're thinking about um the pre-gen characters that i use for the games um one of the characters her father sorry her mother was the quartermaster for the silver shields over in pavis and she was marrying an Isaris merchant and they were, she's Etries, he's Isaris, but they got on well, they were planning to marry and all the rest of it. And all of a sudden this guy rocks up with his white bull society and her world falls to pieces. The friends that she loved, the, the, the tavern she drank in was smashed up. The, the Rugbagian clan were ousted out while storm balls danced on the tables. And These chaos cultists are terrible, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I think we can all agree. <laughs> Causing chaos like that. It's awful. <laughs> and and, and she, she's a typical sort of like the characters that you might have that have, have been out in Sarta and out in Prax and they're, they're going back home. So one of the, the ideas that I have is that there's a lot of refugees there's a lot of people that are leaving the conflict in Sarta who aren't lunar soldiers. They are wives that have lost husbands in battle or husbands that have lost wives in battle, any other combination. And um, they are going home and they're fleeing for their lives in some cases because there are people charging after them, wanting to slay them and, and do horrible things to them. So that's a source of, of starting a game. I think that's quite an interesting place to start is I'm leaving Sarta because Sarta is now a hostile environment and Tarsh is a place of uh, love and friendship in that respect. Uh, the, God, the love of the goddess in particular, it's, it's all embracing. And the love of Aleria in the large Aleria temples, even more embracing. 
But you've got ties there. You've got links there. You may have family there. You will have friends or suppliers or still active suppliers there of all kinds of things. The point is moving from trashed Johnstown that we've all seen in the starter set. I mean, if moving from there to the greatest city in Dragon Pass is is a no-brainer. Really. Exactly. So if you're starting the game with a Sartorite character and your GM says, Brilliant, you're a Sartorite, you're rocking up at the walls of Furthest as a refugee, what do you do next? You could do that. You could do that as an exile, as a Grazelander, as a Praxian. There's a sable colony just outside Furthest mm-hmm. of people who uh, were on the wrong side when Argrath's chaos cult disrupted Prax. Um, as a as an Ezrolian, I mean, you know, if you going to have the two poles of civilization around here. One of them is Notchit, which aptly called the Queen of Cities, and Furthest, which we might think of as a crown jewel of sorts. There was quite a trade in Ezrolian phallic symbols in our uh, our campaigns. Um, they, 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 were, they, they were a definite geek, gimmick in, uh, in our Furthest campaign that was sold regularly. So there was definitely several uh, phallic symbol sellers that uh, attended the market. <laughs> One of the things you you do, I mean, I know Simon, like me, visits museums and you look at ancient crap. And when you see an awful lot of ancient crap, you have to ask yourself, well, they were really into this. How can I bring this into RuneQuest? And that's Mm -hmm. how we got those lovely rules for votive images that are now in the RuneQuest core rulebook. Because I was going around the British Museum with Jeff Richard that was absolutely packed with really crappy small clay statues and we just got to talking about why why would you make these and the answer is free power gain roll on your holy day you don't have to yeah. turn up <laughs> of course you make these yeah but similarly with Israelian phallic symbol and I, at this point i'll leave the floor to simon i went to vindolandia uh, which is a, a very large fortress on Hadrian's Wall. And uh, I have a, a friend, uh, David Shaw, who actually was the guy who first played a lunar in my my games. He he played a lunar visiting Apple Lane. He liked the Seven Mothers cult, and he decided that we played a one-on-one scenario of him turning up in Apple Lane and having a bad time. But he's a, he's a, 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 an archaeologist, and he put me in contact with some of the people running Vindolandia. And uh, I got to arrive there to see him a Roman shoe out of uh, out of a bog uh, near the Hardly gate. Hardly relevant to furthest, I think you'll find. <laughs> Hardly relevant. When, when I was all. very young, I did some archaeology at Halstead's Fort, as we call Vindolanda. It was great. I wanted and, to build a new car park, park and wanted to make sure there was nothing interesting under it. And after a week's hard work, I can confirm there was absolutely nothing interesting <laughs> under that car park. <laughs> but what they find is shoes. They find lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of soldiers' shoes. And they then found documentation as to what they do with these shoes. So they've marched all the way across Britain and they get to this massive fort, which it was a really big fort. And they take their shoes off and they throw them as a good luck charm into this boggy pool as they sort of go in and then they buy new shoes so there's a it's a simple thing like that soldiers wear through shoes you know so they're literally charging up and doing that and they're they're pulling out and they they have a wonderful section which is the shoe museum there which is literally just thousands of shoes and the day i was there they were literally pulling shoes out and but again like they were saying i've always been somebody who likes to know what um, a, a Pelorian eating with. I don't want to know necessarily what they're eating, but I want to know what they're eating with. I, I like physical archaeology. 
and a lot of things that are really important to me I, I, and this used to happen a lot with the, the artwork i used to do was about creating glorantha objects yeah well uh, this uh, brings me to one of the our, our audience questions we collect before uh, what do people go out to eat in furthest Oh, where they do, where do they go out to eat, or what do they eat where, while going where out? Where do they go out, and what do they have? Uh, so we have uh, an entire, very developed section of the book, which describes the vast array of eateries that you can go in, how you eat, where you eat, what you can eat. Uh, that's it. What, what page are we on now with Nick? I'm, I'm terrible. Um, I'm referring to page 21, which 21. I think you'll find is very consistent with RuneQuest weapons and equipment, which, of course, describes the kind of food widely eaten throughout Dragon Pass, including furthest. So we didn't need to explain that the basic food yeah. stuff is a kind of kebab on flatbread, because that's a given. <laughs> Main bread. You know that. What the King of Tarsh eats is, of course, much nicer than that. But is it wheat or is it maize? Uh, maize. 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 Maize in the majority. If you're in furthest, it's maize. It literally sits on the maize belt. The, 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 the temple of Honeil, the, the, the goddess of maize, the goddess of fertility, uh, um, who has amazing hips. Um, amazing. Has, uh, so she uh, is, of course, the goddess of maize. And if you are in furthest, maize is extremely important. If you're in the majority of Tosh, maize is very important. But in, in furthest, is extremely important. And it's coming now, in constantly. something we need to stress here, and I want to be very, very appreciative and fulsome in my praise for uh, Philip uh, McDonnell, who did the art for um, what we call Fat Honeal outside the Morrisian, <laughs> um, is that he turned in an absolutely perfect picture of a giant colossal statue of the beautiful Honeal the Dancer, the um, founder of the royal line of New Tarsh, and with offerings at her feet, which included ears of corn, maize, maize corn, yellow maize corn. And Simon and I both looked at that and felt slightly sick, and we, we may have vomited. And <laughs> we went back to Phil and very politely said, you realise, of course, that lunar corn is black and red. Red and black. Very red, very black, in between, mix of those. Um, the yellow stuff is kind of a bit sickly and something's gone wrong. And I, I, I'm not sure that ever grows anywhere in Glorantha at this point in time. And Phil, bless him, Philip corrected his art and brought it up to the high standard of artistic integrity that you've come to expect from the Johnstown Compendium. Um, and indeed, that was subsequently followed in the um, Earth Goddesses book, I think. Did yeah. we come out first? Uh, I think we were. Yeah, I think we were first. Were we? We, might have we were like first. we were like that at the end. It was we? neck and neck anyway. Neck but neck. the thing is, I'm so glad because the thing is, the the the, the, the lunar corn grown throughout the maize belt of furthest is basically gloriously red and black. And if you look at some odd maize varietals in the real world and say, well, this is really what lunar corn looks like. It's it's transformative. It will change it your understanding. It really is. Yes. No, maize, so, so if the, you, as, as Jörg knows, and he just wants to hear <laughs> me say, it's, it's the fifth wane wonder crop. It's more productive than any other grain you're likely you're to gonna, find. If you're going to eat in furthest, so you're probably going to go along to one of the cook shops. These usually sit at the bottom of the tall houses, which are a type of insulate, but are known as tall houses by many people. 
And they, they situated around the bottom of the tall houses because people don't have their own fireplaces in the houses. They don't have the facilities to cook. So you go down Because they burn to, down. Because they burn down. Uh, so you go downstairs and you go down to your little cook shop. And in your cook shop, they're going to be selling little sweet maize cakes. They're going to be selling, which are sweetened with honey, uh, vegetable stews, skewers of meat, uh, of varying qualities depending on where you're living. Um, you know, you're going to be drinking a maize beer. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things going on there. Uh, good nutrition is available. Um they, they, okay, a cook shop tends to be like the greasy spoon, which I think is a British term, but is well known. You know, they, they literally the cheap and nasty. I think, I think the, the cult of Joe shows us it's also known in America. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to go there, but if you're going to go to the other end of it all and you are going to go to one of the really fancy taverns in town, you are going to be getting like, you know, um, peacock. Um, <laughs> you're going to get uh, beautiful um, sturgeons, you know, or something vast of, on, on, a, on a platter, something unique and unusual, uh, um, very granthal ingredients. Of course, we're going back to mercantile things here. So you're probably going to have access to sable because there's a sable tribe outside the town. There's a charun shaman known in the town. Uh, the best butchers in the world are charun worshippers, as we all know. Um mm. And Charon is the god of butchers. He is not just the god of Praxians. He is now officially the god of butchers. So, you know, he's in there as, as that deity. So you're going to get your, your fresh meat on a regular basis. So there's plenty of stuff to access food-wise. And then you get, you know, Imperian cheeses uh, coming down from Hortigarth and things like that. Um, you're going to be importing wines from all over the place. And the, in furthest, they have probably an incredibly rich diet because they are getting their food from so many sources. And, and it, even the sort of lowest of the low is going to have some access to food, which they can pay for in coin through their services. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily that the, the and around Furthest itself are farms. We do mention a sort of few of the ideas of farms and vineyards and things around. We gave some sort of little samples of that around the city. So you can get to see what it's like to be a farmer. You could actually be not visiting the city. You could be visiting the winery up the road. You could be visiting the, um, the, the, the little farm community that's north of the city. Um, you know, there's plenty of places to go and just in, in be part of a normal community and one of the things i want with wanted to refer this is that it's about being a normal person in a big city so there's that feeling as well if you are walking into the big city and it's a big city that as a gm i think is actually more easily and more easily relatable than a great big rocky thing in a mountain where it's built by dwarven tunnels carved into the cliffs. I'll love that <laughs> one later down the line, but you know, um, <laughs> it's, got, it's got kind of yeah. alpine valley pockets, and there, there's a, there's a whole region full of trolls who want to eat your baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell me where he'd rather live. Go yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Bold home is trickier to get your head around. Exactly. Than a so when good, nicely planned city, but when you go to Furthish, you are mm -hmm. going to recognise things as a. G 
GM. For me as a GM, it was an easier city to manage than the cities I've managed before. I'd always played with Pavis and I'd always, or Parvis, Pavis, um, Pavi. Uh, So, you know, I'd only got the appreciation of that sort of size of of community. I I had no understanding of how Starter worked at all, really, even though I was illustrating. I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. But when somebody said to me, we're going to do Furthest and we played in Furthest, I understood the city. I understood where, you know, what it was like to stand outside and have a drink and watch the world go by and go to the silk merchants and buy this and then go to the gladiatorial arena and watching the the uh, rites of Honil. As, as, um, mm. Mm. And so uh, you have a right in furthest, you know, whether it's because you fled Sartar, because you're just visiting for tourism or trade or whatever. Uh, and, you know, after you've had your snack, that's all good. But, you know, people are playing, of course, games in there and they want to play some adventures. Uh, so what would be the main attraction points for adventuring in for this? So I'm being slightly... Uh, so one of the things that fr- from the pre-gen games and that almost partly led to this was uh, back at Continuum, uh, I think not long, two, four years ago, I took some further stuff with me then. And... We ran a very noir thing. Now, I know Notchet Noir is on on there, but we ran a very noir-type game where the players were well-renowned in the city. They, they, they were... Um, there was a detective type character in there. I've, there's a film with Brian Brown in it called uh, Age of Treason, uh, which the great Brian Brown, the Australian actor from Cocktail... Uh, plays the uh, detective uh, Fal- Didius Falco, I think his name was Falco, I can never remember his way out. And he wanders around the city with his sidekick, this gladiator, and he frequents, uh, he runs his detective agency out of a bathhouse where he's friends with the local attendants at the bathhouse. And it was that sort of community type thing was what I quite liked, that idea. So the adventures that I did were, I've done so far, so the the I have actually written, uh, I think it's now five full adventures, which I plan to publish. So there's the one in the core book itself, which gives you an idea of that weirdness of being part of the the city itself and the uh, sort of weird magic and things that can happen in the city. Um, There is one which is a sort of Romeo and Juliet murder mystery plot, twisted, very um, connected to lunar magic and right uh, i recently play tested uh, another game which which shows you sort of consequences of people um meddling in things they shouldn't meddle in which was like uh, it was creating sort of strange effects across the city um there's another one which is like a let's go to copper town which is quite fun with a lot of sort of people involved in sort of skullduggery in that respect and then there's other ones for example um where the players are getting dragged into and you know have to go into it the civil war uh, which we're not talking about at the moment because no, we let's don't not know talk much about, about civil war. No, we won't talk it about Civil war, there is and, no and, time unless civil your surname war. is Orindori, you really don't need to exactly. worry. So <laughs> there's quite a lot of that going around the town, um, 
there's big characters in the town and one of the sections is the personality section so um you have got you know big gangster gangs there there's a lot of gangs there you've got um, merchants who are seeking tasks i think every, almost every big pc we had we actually stripped out some of the scenarios because there was about 400 scenario plots that we had at the time um so you've just got like little things like uh, the priestess of azrelia for example himaria copper sound um i mean she one of she uh, is the patron of an organization called the golden gores uh these delightful babista gore warrior women that guard your bank and things like that and she pays out so even something like a bank heist has got some really interesting permutations to it. You know, it's robbing the shops. I think realizing that the Babista Gore cult does bank security and loan enforcement is one of those transformative moments to your understanding of Glorantha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot because of stuff you can do with Babista Gore, which is really I, I, and fun. The cult of Azrelia, I mean, it's it's actually, I mean, we, we talk a lot about um, and not yet and um, the holy country and Azrelia and regarding that, but Copper Town and has a very, very large temple of Azrelia there. And there are Azrelia cultists in the city. So, that, I mean, that's just one thing where you can sort of, even just doing a heist is going to bring you into lots of different trouble in there. Um, you've got, like, if you, you could be sat on um, jobs as a, a boat guard. You could be, you could be hired by the uh, Union of Sanitary Engineers to uh, descend into the depths of uh, the sewers of furthest. Yeah, yeah, there is a great map of the sewers of furthest. What, what is unique, though, about furthest? Because a lot of the stuff you're talking about like doing some bank heists or working for the city watch or whatever like you can also do that in other big cities like Notchet and whatnot so what what really makes furthest unique i think it, it, it's this crossover it's this mishmash of the, you've got that strong heartland sort of concepts in there and then you've got the um the, the city itself which i think further sometimes feels like it, it doesn't have to change it, it what's going on goes around furthest furthest is quite resistant to things like i think the average citizen of furthest is quite a strong character you have got at this point you are accessing there isn't another massive gladiatorial arena you've got tourney altar how <laughs> in practice if you want yeah, to go yeah. the the, the yeah. gladiator arena is one of my favorite things about furthest because exactly you can get to play gladiators if you want and this is fucking yeah. awesome and and one of the pregens in my campaigns is a gladiator and also his his personal body servant who makes large amounts of money selling uh, strigiling his sweat off him and selling it to mature <laughs> ladies um i know simon, simon went to great lengths when he was developing the gladiator traditions of furthest to uh, borrow from uh, various Mesoamerican uh, ritual combat forms. Um, you'll see though their, their elements are all through this. It is in no way similar to anything that might have happened at um, amphitheatres <laughs> or coliseums in um, any parts of Europe you're familiar with. It's uh, very much true to Greg Stafford's vision of Glorantha. I think we need to say that because it definitely, as we all know, the Romans aren't aren't remotely uh, the, the aren't remotely <laughs> and that's one of the reasons i was so proud to come up with this um identifying font we use throughout the furthest <laughs> which is clearly a a very beautiful extraordinarily roman looking mosaic font which i thought stamped our brand identity all over this and obviously yeah. if you have a a seleucid font that you think we should have used instead you're welcome to submit it and i have a a receptacle for that seleucid font and i look forward to looking at it. Yeah. So, 
I wanted it to be a, a, a have that mishmash of culture sort of thing, but it also has this very lunar thing going over the top of it. It is pure. The lunar feel is very strong there. And there's a point where I can hark back to my last appearance on this podcast before I was banished. Um, and we talked about the Seven Mothers cult. Oh, yeah. Because what you've got in the description of the great temple of the Seven Mothers in Furthest is a worked example of what all these different aspects, how all these different subcults come together. Now, we're still doing that without the individual cult write-ups or the full cult write-up for the seven mothers those we've now been told are coming in march next year mm-hmm. glorious and, and the, the, I sorry i'm just savoring that for a moment yes um cults of glorantha cults, cults of runequest <laughs> the lunar way is coming out in march of 2024 set your <laughs> abacuses now so i mean one of the things that is really 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 frustrating is uh having seen those cults for quite a long time backwards and forwards because it, 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 i've been a friend for chaosium for quite a long time and, and nick's position we've seen them and you know what they're going to contain and it's so frustrating because i had to when i'm writing this book i actually have a document where i've had to make sure i haven't implied any secret knowledge from chaosium archives into the book <laughs> and reference and co- honestly it is a reference sheet is a spreadsheet of exactly where any resources come from so that i don't accidentally publish something that's not been published yet because uh, one of the problems we've had in a way is that uh, and this is no insult to jeff but he has been putting some beautiful things up about Tarsh and about furthest, which are accessible on on various um, platforms to read, but that stuff is out of limits for me to use in this book. Okay. Um, we we went to we 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 did some poking, didn't we? And we managed to get a few mm-hmm. names in there that were from those documents and there are some concepts like you know like maize bread well that was a no-brainer you know maize beer and a maize bread eating a pork sandwich outside looking in the direction of the red moon which was in one of sort of jeff's things there's a no-brainer but i can't put those other details in here and i had to make sure those details were not in this book you know it's almost like anti-canon on purpose it's like you're having to make sure you didn't step on a cannon in the wrong way because well, this of is the thing I, what simon was wrestling with and it is really complex is if you were publishing on the johnstown compendium and you want to use stuff that's been published by chaosium it's a doddle allude to it reference it in extreme cases ask us if you can quote it that's great but for stuff that has not been published by Chaosium, for Jeff Richards' working notes, which he shares generously and profusely on social media, you can't use that yet. It's not been published. And skirting around that is something I have to help people with quite a lot on the Johnstown Compendium. In the worst case, we had somebody just copied a page of Jeff's stuff, published it as a freebie and said, <laughs> I use Jeff's stuff. I hope he doesn't mind. He minded. Um, mm. So we're very careful about that nowadays. And I do spend some time with extremely original creative people like Simon and um, Harold Smith, um, Martin Hawley, uh, Ian Thompson, just making sure that they are staying on the right side of making 
uh, unauthorized use of unpublished material? Of course, the, the real answer is to have a strongly contrarian worldview and make shit up that supports it, which is what I do myself. <laughs> That's really lovely because you're absolutely, you can be absolutely certain that Jeff will never tell the truth about our graph in any of his books. And if you want to learn that, you have to read mine. <laughs> So, yeah, that was difficult in the whole project. But um, people have got that resource as well. The nice thing is, is if you want to play, you buy my book. You go out there, you buy my book. I just want to say that again. It's like, buy my book. Because yeah. you're going to get a tangible thing you can hold on to that contains lots and lots and lots and lots of useful information. But While also, you're there, buy his map. Buy, oh, buy my oh, map. Yeah. yeah, there's the map on, on the red bubble. We'll, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, well, since, since you're trying to get people to buy your book, and because you know we talked about a lot of general things, can you actually tease or talk a bit about like actual specific things that people will find definitely in your okay. book? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> like so, the gladiators. That's yeah, also there, my there is, really there is the um, the um, can we use the word Osborne? <laughs> the, I think we can. <laughs> are we allowed to use Osborne? So. The Osborne books are, I think I absolutely love, and they, they used to have these sort of images of things like transport in Rome or um, houses in, in classical Greece or something like that. And that's one of the things the that I wanted away to views have. of bathhouses. Cutaway views of bathhouses. Beautiful things yeah. like that. I, 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 if you've actually, looking back to the old, um, the Pavis, Moon Design Pavis book, we did do some of that. Um, so it was a thing I, I I did at the time. It was very tricky to do, and not my forte. I, I, but I wanted to have that feeling of those. This is what it looked like, and that's one of the things we did with the gladiators. We we wanted you to be able to say, "Oh, that's oh that that's that type of gladiator," and "Oh, that's that." I wanted you to actually be able to say, "Oh, I can't wait to see gladiator X fight gladiator Y," and uh, you know, I want to see what a blood cestus does when they're pitted against a corn dancer. You know, yeah. it's, it's that type. Type of oh, thing. Right. That's actually we we've got an unpublished piece of bonus content. Maybe if this makes it to gold, we'll 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 finish it and send it out. Which is the random encounters in furthest, and one of them, if you're in the right part of town, is with a a mob of gladiator supporters, and you can roll a d10 <laughs> and find out which kind of gladiator they oh, think is awesome, I, I and you can that. roll another d10 to find out which kind of gladiators <laughs> they think are going down. They're going down. That's right. I, like, I love some good uh, city encounter random table. But I, I want to say that, you know, uh, I definitely want to see or maybe even participate in a gladiator, like furthest gladiator game, a mini game, you know, a bit like the old school, mm-hmm. like uh, Steve Jackson melee uh, game. Well, I, like- I actually did. I actually did used to. I, I, I have recently ran, uh, I basically took the Gangs of Rome um, miniatures game and, and did a... Yeah. Uh, a, a version of my own sort of thing to to play it through, uh, and of course the monster coliseum, which was a beautiful thing in its day. So, what are the, the things you've got in the book? So, you've got basically this travel log through the whole city. So, you are getting to see everything within the city. I I could have gone down into more detail than I did, but Nick said that I really wanted to keep it punchy in the sort of page length. Was one of the things. I, 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 the book's 156 pages out, I think. It's the book is the right size, Simon. The book is the right yeah, no, I size. Think, I think it hits the, the right like granularity, I think. I yeah. think it's, it, it hits mm. the right note, yeah. 
So you can explore through the city. So every major temple is given some information. Every major building is given more information. Temples are really important because, you know, there are more temples, as usual, than public buildings in, in, in being a Glaranthan city. So, you know, you have got details of the markets, every market and the sort of nuances of those markets, the trade temples, you've got how the markets are even managed. I know it sounds really dull, but it's a thing that's in there. Um, you've got about the different crafts that are in there, which I will point out, there's a couple in there I rather like. So, Some of our foreign listeners may not be familiar with the concept of Alan Sugar and his apprentices. Do you want uh-huh. to... <laughs> Explain yeah. Alan, Alanis Sakaris at all. Alanis Sakaris, yes. Alanis Sakaris is this um, powerful Isaris uh, merchant uh, who controls the markets at the moment. Uh, and he um, has this, he takes on apprentices every year and he puts them through a series of challenges. If you want to say mm. a nice little game here, if your Isaris cultists, you know, you can create a series of challenges to run your Isaris or Etri's cultists through to see if they will get taken on as an apprentice by Alan Sakaris, um, who is, uh, of course, he's named after the Sakar, the, uh, the long tooth um, lion <laughs> of the empire. Mm. He has a fierce attitude and, and he's renowned for for uh, firing people on the spot. But yeah, he's he's a typical sort of character in the book where you've got somebody who's an employer can take you on and provide you things. So you've got the idea, the dynamic. On the other hand, you have Devorah the Bee. Uh, Devorah, of course, is uh, she's an example of a self-made woman, self-made on her family fortunes, uh, which were in honey. Uh, That's a kind of self-made. It is definitely self-made on vast family fudge. And uh, you've got you've got hers and juxtaposition to him. So you've got like those big power plays going off as well. And and she, if I remember right, is uh, she wants to sort of like push for different ways of collecting taxes. And she's after getting, she's managed to get herself on the King's Petty Council and, you know, things that Alan Sakaris doesn't quite do so there's a lot of that sort of playing around with that and, and of course i i just looked up who alan sugar is in real life and <laughs> n- now i get the reference but you have to watch yeah, the bbc yeah. to to get it so yeah <laughs> so yeah there is an american version of the series i believe uh, i can't remember this, who hosted that no, no, i can't remember who the host of that one yeah let's not talk about who hosted uh, that let's not talk about that Okay, what else can we find in your book? So throughout the book, there are these sort of drop-in sections. So for example, near the markets, you've got about the interplay between the cults of Anelda and Honil, which is quite an interesting one. So Anelda is a well-established religion. Um, there is uh, Heruverel, I can never say it, um, the, the great <laughs> temple, Heruveranelda. 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 Come on, which, it's a <laughs> Which sits on Cordos Island, which is this great big temple it's only like a small porter cabin on the surface uh, in this great labyrinthine temple underground and uh, Hanil the goddess um, she arrived and she did her whole spring dance ritual and she entered into the heart of the the, the Anelda temple and proved to be as worthy as the other grain goddesses there and it, it while Which she is. was on which she is, utterly. Mm-hmm. And while she was uh, acting and on the, the, the ground and while she was uh, present in Tarsh, her cult flourished. 
some factions in an elder cult didn't particularly like her and turned against her and things that weren't very sensible. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Old thinkers and belly feel moonwise. <laughs> so you've got things like those dropping and play of things like that. And and this plays into the the thing that I really like about Tarsh and furthest. Like it's like Nick said, it's not a Tarshite city, it's a lunar city in Tarsh, mm-hmm. right? And it's back in you. The, this interplay between like, you know, the farmlands of Orlanthi, like old school Orlanthi people with the lunar way dropped in the middle. And this is where like there's lots of interesting things going on. You say old school Orlanthi. I think they might say they were old school Bantaring people. Um, in fairness, worshipping Orlanth is a bit a bit passe nowadays, isn't it, Simon? I think oh, yeah, totally. you can see why in the old days when things were more violent and when people had an insatiable lust for the cows belonging to their neighbours, you might want to war- worship a god of war and raiding and <laughs> well, when, when I say Orlanth, yeah, I should really say like light bringers, maybe. Oh, light bringers, cool. They're civilized. We, we love the light. The light bringers. Although my yeah. understanding is that if you go away from furthest, you can. see see the worship of Orlanth be there and it's more like when mm-hmm. you're close to oh. when you're close to furthest it's more about bar- yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah. you're right Ludo the further you get from civilization for which for these purposes is <laughs> the center of furthest the more Orlanth you're likely to meet that's yeah. a that's a very yeah. astute observation and I, I commend you for it so if yeah. you're going out to uh Dunstop for example, has a substantial amount of Orlanthi. If you go over Which to Which also Bagnot, has a bit of write-up in your book, like it's a bit Yeah, yeah, all of like, these locations oh, the, have a write-up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a map too. I love a book with many maps, so that's why I like your book, it's got many maps. We like maps. I've always mm. liked maps. Yeah, me too. I mean, you've seen you've seen what I have behind and me. Gorgeous yeah. posters too, Ludo. Yeah. Really nice posters. <laughs> so if you want to, you, you can go out and you can have an Orlansi Tarshite guy. Chances are, though, like Nick was saying, Bantar is actually a big deal. He is a big deal here because... You want to keep your family fed. You want to pay your taxes. You want to keep your village being the smartest. You want to win the the, um, the, the best Tarshair Village of the Year award. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> you've got Tarsh in Bloom awards as well, you know, all these light things. So you can have a little plaque presented to you by uh, by, by some some agent of the king who turns up to deliver it. In fact, there's even, if I remember right, one of the towns is actually a, a model village. So you can actually go mm. and see what it should really look like. Crimson Acre. Uh, yeah, and I remember the, right. the king travels around and says, oh, hello, hello, and what do you do in his glamour <laughs> accent? Because, of course, he, he was educated in glamour, don't you know? Yes. And he has to wear strange ethnic hats when he goes to far out parts of Tarsh. <laughs> it's all slightly embarrassing, but needs must when you're royal, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown and all that it's like when justin trudeau uh, goes around to alberta and has to wear to wear cowboy boots and and exactly this is one of the things we we we, we took it the hyperdrive with the red emperor cult in the glamour book you may have noticed the iconography section there stresses <laughs> that boonsun has to wear all kinds of stupid outfits exactly and and, and this is it so you've got your little villages you can go and many of books. which have been illustrated by chaos <laughs> <laughs> So um, if you, you then get to sort of see things like places like the, the Seven Mothers Temple you talked about, that gets a big, what is it, three? Did I write three pages? I wrote three pages, which is big on a... In all fairness, it's a big temple. <laughs> it's a big temple. And I get temple. some gorgeous art. We, we've got art from Trisha Baker in this book, and that's... Oh, I mean, your, your art's gorgeous too, Simon, but... 
Yeah, Trisha's was lovely. <laughs> Trisha was a godsend to fall on, uh, and she's doing some work for uh, a 13, eight, 13 age yes. book set in uh, North Lula. Point, I think, is it? And, and, Red Moon and Warring Kingdom. We had Evan on the show talking a bit about yeah. it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's that. You've got sections, like I said, you've got things on like the transport of the city. You've got a whole section about the Osler River, um, the Port Authority, the cult that's there, the, the Temple of Oslera. Um, Batira the Blue, uh, who is quite an important character to me because there we talk, I talk in various ways. I'm a mental health professional. And one of the things that is really important to me is about mental health. And we talk about mind blasts and madness and things like that. I mean, sometimes a little glibly because it's it's the name in this game spot. I wanted to have characters in there with some depth. And if you read Batira, there's sort of elements of that in that with her, her background and her, her moments of, of creativity and genius. And then the other points where she's struggling with her emotions. So you have like, I wanted those human elements to be in these games as well. Um, we deal with other difficult subjects. So we talk about slavery and we look at how that exists because we are, Tarsh does have places like Slave Wall, you know, these places exist. So we wanted to look at that in a sympathetic manner and we wanted to fit with that to comply with the um, the, the stuff published by Chaosium as well to make sure that, you know, you that was explored in a sensitive way. Um, we look at the... Um, the difficult sides of the city as well, where the poverty is down at dirt side, where, you know, these uh, sections of the city, have, there's been clearances of some sections of the city to fit with ideals of former, <laughs> it's under the label on the back <laughs> of the book. Under the barcode on the back of the book. <laughs> Everything purpose. that can go wrong does go wrong for dirt side. So uh, dirt side... may not be significant in Simon's excellent scenario <laughs> as well, but it is like the uh, these people got the shitty end of the stick. And, and still do. <laughs> Lots of Orlanthi there, I think. Yeah, there are Orlanthi down there. There are Orlanthi mm. that didn't make it in the big city. That might be where your players start from. You could yeah. literally be the bottom. The thing is that you could be scrabbling around in the dirt, in dirt side as a child. The Tilo Nori priestesses turn up at dirt side, bringing their, you know, they, they turn up with the onion bread and the potato soup and things, and they <laughs> teach the children. <laughs> and, they raise, <laughs> and they raise these children up out of dirt side and find them places we'll go back to gaps in employment is another factor so let's talk about people raising up i think might be worth it so right okay we talked earlier on about the dragon rise and a lot of important people went to the dragon rise high priests chief priests nobles People that were seen as, you know, it's going to be great. I, I, I have this image of all of these lunar potentates on their horses and palanquins, you know, riding sight, a beautiful sight, armies marching either side, the umbrellas protecting them from... An absolute tragedy, Simon, you're right. It is. It's awful. <laughs> but, but now there's a lot of open positions. Exactly. Yes. You've got a point. In, One in, man's in, tragedy is another man's opportunity, as they say in Sata. And there's an awful lot of vacant high priesthoods in furthest. So I ran a game for Brian Drugid, who's done the uh, Hikim, Children of Hikim book. And um, one of the things was is that the players in the group went, we must go to the cult of the seven mothers and get a priest of some skill and knowledge to attend to us. So they charged off and they walk into the temple and there's this like, 19 year old guy with spots in a 
uh, like slightly hanging off cassock going hi I, i'm the guy that's going to be helping you today and they're like uh. and, and he goes and he's like asking them for advice and they're going and they're going why is he asking us for advice this as well because you worship a ripionto and you're a really ranking initiate who's got good magic and that's an ex-gladiator you're walking around with and she's a noble woman you are the people that people are turning to now you there are Would vacancies you- for your characters Will I ruin anything you're working on, Simon, if I go slightly craggy island here? No. <laughs> this was one of the best ideas Simon had. I mean, he's had many ideas in his life, and I'm not just talking about in this book. I'm talking about one of the best ideas he's ever had. If you are familiar with the television series Father Ted, then you will already know where I'm going. If you're not, you should immediately go and watch all I, of it. I've, I've heard so, of it, um, but I'm not familiar. It's set it. on a, a a home for disgraced priests, disgraced Catholic priests in the Irish clerical hierarchy who are sent to Craggy Island, which is the arse end of nowhere, because they can't do much harm there. Um, and the thing is, if you're running a game in Tarsh, after the dragon rise, priests who used to be exiled to the local equivalent of Craggy Island are the surviving priesthood, the people who weren't invited to the great religious event of the the eighth wave. So, so, so th- there's a danger that Tarsh is going to be led by all of the incompetent and stupid um, uh, leftovers. Well, unless your player characters get there, yeah, yeah. and your player characters will be that tilt in things. I mean, one of the things that you have to remember is that. Uh, and it's a really bad position here for King Ferandros, is previously he's been able to look north and say, send me more troops, send me more aid. I want more priests. And dutifully priests and troops and things arrived. The emperor has stopped looking south. He is Mm. looking east. He is looking to the the concerns he has got. He's looking inwards to the White Moon Rebellion. He's looking towards the the, the Penton nomads on the edges of it. And those troops aren't... Well, they were extinct, Simon. I distinctly remember your surveyors told me there were no Penton nomads There were no Penton nomads. You have to remember that the the overseer has also disappeared. The, the, The provincial overseer has gone and got it got it uh and all of a sudden so ferandros has been told well actually you need to just keep all the provinces you're our most uh, favored son uh we really like you uh what you need to do is keep everybody in order for a little bit uh until uh, normal service is resumed yeah uh, well he thinks that's what he's been told to do <laughs> we are appropriately skeptical about whether he actually has some kind of plenary authority over the lunar provinces in our book but that's I the mean, way he's acting i mean there's an there's another type of uh lunar priests which survived uh the dragon rise and those are the ones uh loyal to uh, fazor and, and our graph of course and and our graph of course yeah because our graph yeah, yeah, also yeah. has some but one of the things that I always think about is it's quite interesting because if you're going into uh, Faza, you, I think there's, there's points where Tarshites curse Faza. If he had done what Faza should have done, then the dragon rise wouldn't need to happen because Tatius wouldn't have got his place. I think I think you're saying they curse Tatius rather than they curse Faza. They curse Tatius, yeah. We, we are Sorry. generally agreed that Tarshites, lunar Tarshites as a whole, think Tatius screwed the pooch. 
yeah yeah well since since you are starting to mention you know father and king um uh what's his name king god goddess save the king (laughs) there is also one of the things you can play in furthest is to get involved in dart wars and uh, i'm gonna let one of you explain what a dart wars (laughs) is and what what is the situation because that's an interesting thing you can play in right the first rule of dart war is you don't talk about the dark <laughs> because you don't want to frighten the horses look a dark war is the entirely rational and civilized practice of lunar nobles bumping off their rivals um by the use of assassins sorcery necromancy weird lunar powers poison you name it um they're warmly encouraged inside the heartlands as a way of revitalizing what might otherwise be a decadent empire. I mean, the I think we can see that the flourishing hothouse vitality of the lunar nobility is entirely down. The way, the way that um, entire dynasties are cut off in their prime and replaced by new people with new ideas every few years is entirely down to the institution of the Dark Wars. And as a triumph of the late 7th, early 8th way, and I'm delighted to say that the habit has now caught on in the provinces, even in Tarsh, the furthest, although the richest, of the lunar provincial kingdoms. Um, King Ferandros of Tarsh, who was educated in glamour, don't you know? Steeped. Has brought, steeped in, gran, steeped in lunar in, tradition. Steeped in lunar tradition, has brought the fine tradition of dart wars to lunar Tarsh, which was a bit of a surprise to his formerly loyal general, Fazer Wydred, who may have been bigging himself up a bit, may have acted or said things, or his kids did in ways that irritated his kids. Now, that's him. a matter. That, that's a whole... Polit- uh, see, I have, this, uh, I have a bit of a bugbear with Onja and Anstad, um, mm. Fazer's children. I actually think that they are the big chunk of rift in all of this. Uh, there's these two upstart um, children strutting their stuff around. Onjo, uh, the poet, oldest son of Fazer Widered, famed for killing the half troll king in single combat at the Battle of the Porkers, no less. Mm. He, big porkers. He, the Battle of the Porkers. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah, those, those, you know, you can. No, we won't discuss. But you, you, do, you wouldn't Porkers. hire tusk riders for for bad things, would you? No, no. People Porky don't hire pies. tusk riders. No, you know, you would never do that. Never do. So, that. but Anjo is this character who is full of self entitlement, in my opinion. He is literally. We did do a bit of the. There was a bit of play of the fade Rauther and um, the, the 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 Harkonnen and stuff going on at times in my head. Uh, which Nick sometimes pulled me back a bit from, but, oh, but usually I push him forward. Yeah, uh, you know, he has by rights control. The, the, the clan has control of the city of Dunstop, and the um, the rule of Dunstop, the control of Dunstop, has the right, the the title of royal bodyguard, the son of them, sort of thing. So it's like a hereditary title. Anjo is not the king's bodyguard. He does not trust Anjo to be his bodyguard because this is his. I'm always trying to be his cousin. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's the king's cousin. The, these two sons of the king's cousin, and they're around about the same age group as well, aren't they? I think they're, they're roughly that sort of age as well. So these are the the bully hick cousins that have beat him round the head every time he's come back from school in glamour type of thing. And Anjo he did, did not go to school in glamour. <laughs> <laughs> Anjo did not definitely go to school. In and he has, you know, the fact that Ferrandos took his own brother-in-law to be his. Uh, 
bodyguard and, and his brother-in-law is uh his sister his wife sorry is from the empire the heartlands so there's a lot of contention Lovely about lady. that which Onjo doesn't like Onjo is strutting his stuff he's banging his chest and demanding his 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 rights and and, and this is one of the things that i think is causing some of these divisions it's not necessarily what Fazer is doing it's what Onjo and Anstad Anstad at this point as well he's really spat his dummy out as as a, a nice english term there my implication is that that Anstad is probably illuminated because of his connections with the the depths of the inner lunar rites. He has just renounced the cult of the Seven Mothers and suddenly swears, I am a worshipper of all and thunderous, and he's painted himself with, you know, nice red uh, wind runes. And um, he has basically sort of appeared there as this character completely provocation against the king. This is all stuff to rattle for Andros, in my opinion. And this Massively is embarrassing to his dad as well. Yeah, yeah. These are, <laughs> bad, these, these are a pair of really bad boys that are stirring up a lot of the stuff that, in my opinion, is one of the wedges that's occurring in, in Tarsh. And there there remember, are other wedges. Tarsh is an interesting wedges. place. Yeah, yeah. These are my favourite wedges, though. Uh, mm. These are the wedgie wedges. Um, wedgers, sorry. Um, they, they, one of the things I, I quite like the idea of is that, that these are like these sort of provoking things. Fraser's trying to do some degree of control of that as well. If you remember in, in, in King of Sarta and other histories, uh, Ferandros sends agents to kill um, his um, uncle's family. Now, he never actually says, if I remember right, it doesn't state Fazer, does it? It says his family. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that that's been overtaken by events, and we have on stage assassination attempts against Fazer in the old non canonical Hero Quest supplement, um, the, seven, the Eleven Lights. Yes, of course, yes. And of course, indeed, yeah. in the non canonical Johnstown Compendium Adventure by me, the Duel at Dangerford. Yes, of course. So yes, of course. we could go with that, or we, we could, could go not. with that, yeah, I, yeah. I do have, at the start of my, my other Johnstown compendium thing, The Crimson King, there's a small passage where I talk about how even when you're the great and the good of the Lunar Empire and you're meeting um, the King of Lunar Tarsh, don't talk about the Civil War because it's really gauche. Um, noticing that somebody is running a dark war would really embarrass them because the whole yeah. point is this is subtle. <laughs> this is underhanded. This does not scare people this does not result in civilian casualties it does not result in collateral damage and above all it does not affect the regular collection of taxes so when you yeah. we talk casually about a civil war in lunatash as if there was a civil war in lunatash but what's going on is far more subtle than that because if it wasn't then King Ferandros or Fazo Widred has really badly screwed up. And that's the point where the Imperial boot yeah, might come yeah. down. But good luck, citizens. I'm <laughs> delighted to say that we, we warmly expect in the next year or so that Moonsun himself will be doing an arena tour of the South. He'll be coming <laughs> to furthest. There's new architecture being laid on. He'll be bringing amazing parading legions of the Heartland troops. Or you can replace the word legions with something appropriately Seleucid in post-production, <laughs> please, Ludo, because I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that the Lunars had legions. Uh, legions of Heartland troops, Moonsun himself, Jar-Eel, the great 
hero general beat pot Aelrin, who's got more medals on his chest than anyone else you can think of. They're all coming to furthest. They'll all be spinning off their own plots in furthest, and then they'll be marching out to squash the Quivini land separatists for good. It'll be glorious. That's coming in the autumn of 1628 to a city near you. <laughs> so you've got all these sort of like divisions going on. I mean, it would be really for foolish to hire an awful lot of Tusk Riders to attack your enemies as well. You wouldn't do that sort of thing because that would be really poor Dark War stuff, wouldn't it? Bear? So um, you wouldn't That's... do things like that. Yeah, it'd be crass. It'd be rude to do things like that. So that is there. It is burning underneath. And there are references throughout the book about that. But I didn't want to dive into it. But it is a thing you could play out. You could go Red Moon Ninja. And it it naturally lends itself to conspiratorial thinking. Because what if Fazer Widred hired Tusk Riders to attack his useless son? You see, it doesn't have to be remotely true, but I can see that rumour spreading through the forum of Furthest. Uh, is it called a forum? It's called a forum now. It's got mosaics and shit. <laughs> um, but, but this is the thing. You see, you're in a conspiratorial mindset. The, the great and good of the country, we know that they are a house divided. I mean, the Fazer and Ferandros are related uh, by marriage. Um, these are noble Tarshite houses. They're intertwined. And we know that half of them want to kill the other half. But they can't do it openly. No. They have to do it subtly. They have to do it secretly. They have to do it within imperial law. This is a thing that I'm really interested in because uh, I mentioned a few times I really want to play a game of basically Jason Bourne in the lunar provinces mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. like Dot War stuff. So I, I, I would love to play that or, or to read something. That, that is it. And it is a way you can play the game. And I actually have played the game like that. And I actually cool. have a scenario with elements of light. And there are characters in here that could help you as somebody doing that. Um, I don't want to say names because they're in there, but you know it's worth mm-hmm. looking at some of the you know, characters that pe- are in there. People know where to find your book, and yeah, and it's not always it. in the major blocks of. Uh, it's not always in those big personality blocks. There are um, the characters that sit there in in various positions that have connections to the heartland that could get you those things. You know, the little herbalist down the road. You can get into the whole oh, apothecary um, type of sort of concepts of, of poisons and stuff like that, as well as as the, the conspiracy the, theories. The lunar way naturally lends itself to mirrors and masks and veils and multiple personalities and all kinds of stuff. It's an absolute godsend if you want to do some kind of twisty espionage conspiracy campaign. I think as well, there's a there's a lovely. You can almost get into sort of like James Bondy stuff, um, you know, like the, the where you're battling through, trying not to cause any disruption, whilst a huge festival is occurring on the streets right, of Furthest, yes. uh, because the <laughs> the the, um, the statue of Varia is being carried from the farmlands to the north to go and visit her mother in the temple in the centre of the city with all her followers, their gongs and their dancing gear, while you are trying not to accidentally stab the small people that are running around. The uh, or alternatively while you're breaking into the the vault of the main treasury yeah exactly furthest is a vibrantly alive city it's it is the great city of dragon pass it's really beautiful i'm very proud to have had a hand in bringing out simon's book it's it's really gorgeous uh, well, we have uh, you, so we are uh, starting to run out of time, so we are going to <laughs> close it. Uh, we have one other listener question, which is probably for Nick, 
because uh, of course this is more of a Simon Bray book than a Nick book. So of course, Fazer and uh, Farandros have completely normal NPC faces, but somebody asked like, you know, if the emperor is Elvis, who really would be uh, Fazer and Farandros? Oh, we we have it was slight differences on that, didn't we? I think was, uh... um, <laughs> no, that 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 really is Dario. That's not my thing at all. <laughs> oh, it's, it's genuinely, working with Dario to illustrate Life of Moonsong was wonderful because he would come out with these casting choices, and we'd say, "Wow, that's brilliant." We didn't say. Go and do Michael Caine as Artifistos, for example. Oh, so we we need to ask Dario then. So no, th- this isn't a thing I do. Um, I think the thing is, on the one hand, Fazer is a extremely well educated, civilized general. Um, I would see him in a kind of. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm a classicist, Roman retired general, Greek mm, retired mm, general mm. mode, in that he isn't actively serving his country, but he would return, if, if called, he'd return to the standards to lead them. But he's on the outs with the current political establishment. The thing I do a lot with, with Fazer in my own head, which is mine, and you can't put your cannon in there, is um, that I think Fazer was trying to become some kind of year king or sacred king of Ezrolia, possibly setting himself up in counterbalance to Moonsun in the north. And if you look at the way Roman generals reacted when they realized what was in Egypt, that's kind of where I'm coming out with Fazer and the holy country, is it's like... Yeah shit, this place is richer than my homeland and it's there for the taking and the guy who rules it is a god. And I could have all of that. The the empire is giving me the troops I need and the allies I need and the inroads I need. And I think there's a lot of fun to be had with the Red Earth faction in Ezrolia. More fun than even Harald has done in his monumentally large book Mm -hmm. about Mm Nutshed City. And that's an area I'd like to explore. Ferrandros, I've used him in two of my scenarios, actually. Uh, uh, He's uh, offstage in the duel at Dangerford, but I talk a bit about the twisty conspiratorial snake pit politics he's engaged in. And he's on stage at the start of Crimson King, where I saw him really as a kind of um, charming Sean Connery type um in the I, I stress that he's affecting a tarshite brogue although he's actually got a, a glamour accent as i keep alluding to mm-hmm. um he's um wearing um civilized costume accessorized with barbaric accessories provided by his image consultants because as the king of tarsh of course he has image consultants working out exactly how you toss the wolf skin over your regulation provincial army breastplate for the <laughs> ultimate sexiness And um, he has this lovely little scene in Crimson King where, as the GM, you get to play Ferrandros chatting up Jariel the Razoress in front of Beatpot Aelrin, which is um, a high-risk strategy and one I commend to all game masters. But um, that's where I've come to. That's where where, where I've got to with him. And I've got a vague memory of a terrible film, possibly the... um, cinematic version of the avengers no not that one with sean connery as a scottish villain in it oh my god yes he didn't have a moon base but he did have a weather control machine and he wore absurdly over the top scottish outfits and that's one of the things that plays into my tarshites at least is they are from a satirite perspective northern so i often (laughs) give my tarshites yorkshire or scottish attributes but i also do the same with my satirites because this is stuff i do in the privacy of my head 
and other people can't get into that. It's sacred, except when I put it down in writing, then I'm usually quite careful unless I have Mike O'Connor doing art, and that's when the secrets come out. <laughs> but that, that would be my that would be my view. For for Fazer, I would be either Antony and Cleopatra or Caesar and Cleopatra, depending on how sexy you find him. And for uh, Ferrandros, I would be either Sean Connery or Sean Connery, again, depending how sexy you find him. <laughs> cool. Thanks. See, I, 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 I have Ferrandros as definitely edgy. I, I think my Ferrandros is, is the sort of person not to be around when he's having a bad day. Oh. I think he has a degree of spite in him that, that, that mm. would pop out occasionally. Uh, goblet flinging. The odd mm. goblet flinging a temper and people sort of getting an idea of his mood before entering the room. And yes, he's not an artist. Yeah, definitely sort of dangerous character to be around. Which, um, he's, he's, he's got a lot on his mind, in all fairness. He so. is, he is. Very pensive in my portrait of him. There's definitely brooding going on in that brain. Mm. The only other thing that I think is quite, we did, which is quite naughty in a way, <laughs> just one last little bit, was the clans of Tosh. Oh, yes. Uh, yep. Because we were told um, on several occasions that tribes and clans don't exist in Tosh. Mm. And then you have the clan of the Orindori. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, we decided to have Tarsh plans and maps and then trying to rationalise and explain that. And I, I just wanted it to be something that was back in there because it was poked out over 20 years and I poked it back in again uh, with, with strong intent. I mean, it made and, sense and, to me. That's the way That's the way I pictured Tarsh anyway. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is, this is part of the glory of the Johnstown Compendium is we can publish stuff and it can be good stuff it can be original stuff must be original stuff isn't it like in king of sartor or the source book that like fazer comes from this clan and this tribe anyway that which points at tarsh having tribes and clans mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. There, was a, there was a period where it all vanished and and i made sure it went back in there oh, okay cool. yeah. <laughs> um the idea was that uh, the Tarshites had begun as the tribe of Tarsh and then became the kingdom of Tarsh with a lot of tribes. And somehow through magic, I don't know, because it makes no sense, um, the, the, the king had somehow abolished the tribes and was now ruling directly through cities. So Simon's got this wonderfully incoherent, deliberately incoherent chapter that talks about districts and great clans and clans of Tarsh and noble families. And the idea is essentially we're just throwing all these words up against the wall and we're saying, well, whatever you think is right, it's probably right. And you've ever heard of Tarshite? Well, they might be from a clan, they might be from a district, they might be from a noble line. They're all important. It's all important. If I ask you, tell me something that's important about Scotland today. You might tell me about a district council or a city or a football team or a clan or a company. And it's like the same with Tarsh. There's a whole bunch of different places power comes from. It's not as simplistic, as um, empty-headed as saying they don't have families or clans because (laughs) they're lunars now and they've abolished human relationships yeah, and, and, and again, people. that's that's one of the things I like about Tarsh is that there's this like uh, legacy uh, so- societal model that is now being overlaid by a different societal model, and so it's like sort of in transition between those two models. 
disgust as there is in satire. Well said. <laughs> You've got this legacy of feuding Highland barbarian cattle right raiders in satire. They've been taken over by this weird mercantile thing from the holy country, which has in turn been taken over by some animal riding chaos cultist from the wasteland. And in Tarsh, <laughs> as you say, they've been blessed by um, Honil the artist, the goddess of civilization and the fifth way in Wondercrop maze and all those other good things and they now live in a peaceful modern city where very few people get murdered except by royal order <laughs> <laughs> well uh once again nick is getting the last words uh is there any um is there anything else you want to plug so of course everybody go by tarsh the crown jewel of lunar tarsh lunar is important uh and uh that's on the johnson campaign there's going to be links uh anything else that you two want to plug yeah you Simon. could buy you could buy the t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> the seven mothers t-shirt oh, yeah. or you can mm-hmm. buy the poster maps we have the poster, poster maps. maps there are two of one of Tarsh and one of Furthest. They're available in a range of different sizes and formats. I recommend you buy all of the different sizes and formats so you can decide <laughs> which one you like best. They're on the S. Bray Arts Redbubble store. I think I got that right. Oh, yeah, we'll have a link anyway. Over in post-production. <laughs> but the other thing I'd like to urge you to get, and this is because I, I genuinely love the Johnstown Compendium and everything it's done, is Peter Hart's uh, adventure Hydra. Um, which is a wonderful sword and sandal romp um, in Lunar Tarsh. And it's for a party. It is really good. Crack Lunar Troops picked men um, (laughs) doing an entirely reasonable and not at all suicidal mission to the Hydra Mountains, um, which don't actually have an exclamation mark, but the book's title does. And that tells you how edgy (laughs) it is. It's really lovely. You get about... 200 pages of scenario more than half of that is a really reusable stat blocks and you know fully detailed stuff if you've seen anything by peter you know what you're getting um but it's a great little scenario and in fact one of the johnstown compendium's other best-selling books um adventurers from the lunar provinces was originally his campaign notes Mm -hmm. on just how how varied and interesting a, a player character party of military types from the lunar provinces could be. So um, I would strongly recommend if you want to play in Tarsh and you've got Furthest already by Peter's book, but if you want to play in Tarsh and you haven't yet got Furthest, get Simon's book because it's <laughs> really good. You do also get the stats for the Hydra in my book. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, I think the only thing I would say, which I haven't, it, it, we're developing, going back to the Red Bubble, this is not mine. Uh, but Mike O'Connor has some of his artwork on there as well, which I'm, I'm sort of selling for him. And we're going to expand that out as well. And Mike is uh, a really, really good guy. His artwork is so distinctive and, and brings something completely different to Glorantha. Um, a complete uh, envy of, I, I have a huge envy for his work and anything with his artwork and is well seen. And in fact, all of my artists have been amazing on this. So if you see uh, their names on products, you go and buy them because, I mean, you've got. For example, um, Mike, Mike's name is rightly on the spine of uh, Black Spear. 
um, the gold best-selling mini campaign that I wrote. But um, it deserves to be there because uh, his vision was absolutely wonderful. Once I was plugged into Mike and we were sparking off each other, we kept ourselves mostly sane during lockdown. I think you can see the evidence of the bits where we weren't quite sane in the finished book. Um, but no, he he he's another of these Gloranthan visionary geniuses who I love really working with, just like Simon. Because you end up with things like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little red bats. Well, well, thank you for your time, both of you. Um, and hopefully we'll have uh, one of you back on the show. I'm going to tell you which one. Maybe both. Okay. Uh, but yeah, thanks again. And we can uh, dart war over it, Simon. We can dart war over it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> if, if a large pig arrives at your door in the next two days. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com, where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. beyond.